In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Everyone in this room who has achieved any years has been outraged by life. In some way, this gift of life which is ours turns outrageous. And outrages are visited upon the heads, the minds, and the hearts of each and every one of us. There is no one who lives in the flesh who is not outraged. This outrage can be of a more or a less form. But by the time we are grown-ups, by the time we are adults, we have been stung by the lash of being misunderstood, of being reviled unjustly, of being taken before the court, so to speak, and uh, we have been the victims of false witness, every one of us. And so, as our sweet Savior takes his painful steps through this holy week, with more and more raining down on his head, he who, unlike us, is innocent, he who, unlike us, has a mind, a heart, and a body, which is the incarnation of purity, he accepts all this. The answer to the outrages of life and the outrageousness of life lies before us. This tomb, like every tomb in every community throughout the Orthodox world, around the planet, brings us to that first tomb, the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. And wherever we find ourselves, high or low, on the longitude and latitude, east or west, it makes no difference. We are all in Jerusalem all this week. We are no place else. And we see the crowds in Jerusalem, the vastest majority, filled with anger and indignation against the one whom they consider to be a blasphemer. But blasphemy is that which is spoken against God. And he is God. And so they are the victims of being unable to disentangle themselves from the environment in which they have been raised. And if no one, no one, in the time of the New Testament had been able to disentangle himself from that, we could say, well, God can hardly blame anyone for being unable to accept his Son, the pre-eternal Logos, the Word of God. It was a nice try, but it was beyond us. God did not somehow understand. He had not taken the measure of the human person. He was acting beyond our capacity. But the truth of the matter is that the New Testament is filled with people who were able to disentangle themselves from their environment, uh, from their sinfulness, from their blindness, from their paralysis, from their insensitivity and their indifference, and to suddenly, from a stony heart, receive a heart of flesh that was capable of pain, and therefore capable of love. 
pain and love are all mixed in to Holy Week. Suffering and victory intertwined. We find it difficult to sort it out, but it wasn't sorted out on the ground when it happened. And so it fell out just to this. Those who loved Christ with a certain amount of vehemence and those who either did not love him at all or who thought they loved him like Judas. But as it turned out, they loved too many other things at the same time and they were put to confusion and overwhelmed and quite undone. This week, this week is an icon of all our life. The universality of Christ's predicament in this week at the hands of you and me, us people, us humans, that predicament is the source of our salvation. It is what gives it its energy and its credibility. Our Savior lies before us as if he were dead. And you and I know the great secret, don't we? You and I know absolutely that he is not dead at all. Even in seeming death, he is quite busy going down into Adis, going down into that Gehenna, that place of the lost, the dead, where his presence strikes those even in the dereliction and the decay of their own death, and they are given yet another chance. Oh, the wonder. Men and women who from the beginning knew about Christ and struggled this way and that against all kinds of hardships and mental predicaments in order to stay with him. And then the good thief, who in a second achieves much. Indeed, he is the first to enter paradise. In the icons on the walls, the frescoes, which show people going into heaven, there is a gate, of course. And at the gate, greeting them, stands the good thief. Remember me, O Lord, he said, when thou comest in thy kingdom. And in that moment, Christ bestows eternity on his head. So we see that it doesn't matter how much time it takes or doesn't take. We must not be envious of those who seem to be on the fast track to eternal life, nor must we ever despair, nor must we ever criticize or judge those who seem to be quite retrograde. Until the moment that that man found himself hanging on the cross next to the King of Glory, hardly recognizable in his circumstances. Until that moment, what do you think that thief was like? You and I probably would not like to have had lunch with him. We would not like to have met him in an alley if we were by ourselves, all alone. 
And yet, for whatever despair or whatever ferocity, for whatever anger, for whatever depression it was that led him to a life of thievery and probably murder as well, in that moment, it all evaporated. It was all gone. He found himself capable of faith, of hope, and of love. And the other thief, the other one, who had Mr. Gallup been around in Jerusalem taking polls on that day, would have spoken for the vast majority, saw Christ as clearly as the good thief saw him. But he could not hope in him. He had no faith in him, and seeing him, he was unable to love him. Mother Thecla, up in Stanwood, said something very nice to me a couple of years ago. She said that she was thinking about heaven and hell. A good thing for a nun to be thinking about. A good thing for all of us to be thinking about. And she said, hell is spending all eternity seeing Christ and not loving him. So Holy Week would seem to prove that while we, not, we may not be able to come up with fine academic theological phrases about it, anyone at all is capable of loving Jesus Christ. No matter how derelict he seems to be, no matter how cold-hearted and how hard-minded he seems to be, anyone, as the good thief proves, in the splitness of a nanosecond, can break through from all of that and love God with such integrity, such completeness, that the only result is that he already has entered eternal life and will spend all eternity, already inaugurated for him, lo, these 2,000 years ago, seeing Christ, and being moved by an ecstatic love for him. There it is. We say that it falls to us in our time to speak the truth with love. Both sides of that equation must be taken with equal seriousness. Truth without love is not truth. Love without truth is not love. It is a hard task, and it falls to the brave, to men and women of rare courage, to be able to bring that off. It seems that it is better brought off by those who are simple of heart, by those whom we describe as the salt of the earth. They may not have degrees, they may not have spent a lot of time in charm school, they may not be able to dance very well, they may not even be thought of as nice, but they are the salt of the earth, and in their saltiness 
they wake us up. They refer us to the single thing that is needful. And they help us to choose, like Mary of Bethany, the better part. We see before us what seems to be a dead man. What it is, in fact, is the other side of God, the one who washes our feet, the one who loves us after we have ceased to love ourselves, the one who loves us even as we reject him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What a lesson there is in that for all those times when we have found it quite impossible to forgive. May God grant that this Holy Week will have sprinkled good salt on our hearts, softening them, making them brave, giving us the spine of faith, hope, and love, so that we may stand like lights on top of tables, not hidden away. May it be so, and may it be so for all of us.